Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 8th day of January 2017. You know, every year, thousands of films are created and only a handful get seen by the general public. Many go unnoticed. Today I look at three films that you probably have never seen on the 117th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks for returning and having a cup of coffee with me this morning. I hope you all had a marvelous holiday, and I'm so glad you're back. Actually, I can't see or hear you, so I'm, I'm just hoping that you're back. So before my break, I was talking about doing an episode about strange, unusual, and rarely seen films. My original thought was to do 10 films that most people haven't seen. This all started when a listener named Brian, aka Joe, told me about a film called Mystery of the Leaping Fish. When I started to write about this film, I quickly realized that I wanted to say more about this film than I thought. So much so that the idea of doing an episode about 10 films became unrealistic. And then when I did my last show of 2016, I did three separate stories about three different toys, and I thought, well, I should do that for these oddball films. Today I present stories or thoughts on three films. The Douglas Fairbanks silent film, Mystery of the Leaping Fish. The Alejandro Hodorowsky 1973 film, The Holy Mountain, which was suggested by my boss, Brecky. And one of my own picks, the 1967 Jack Hill film, Spider Baby. Now, I must say that I received many other great films to do on Coffee with Jeff, and I will eventually use them all. See, if you haven't guessed, I not only love film history, but I love to learn stories about how films were made. In fact, my daughter gave me the Godfather trilogy on Blu-ray for Christmas, and I couldn't wait to watch these films with Coppola's commentary. My lovely wife gave me the DVD box set of the Herzog-Kinski films, and again, I started watching these films with Werner Herzog's commentary, because I love listening to that stuff, so... So what I'm saying is I'm planning on doing episodes on three films uh, every fourth or fifth Coffee with Jeff episode. So I will get around to using all your suggestions, and I really hope I get more. I mean, anytime you see a film that you say, that's weird, send it to me. I'll probably use it. And again, thanks to everybody who sent me suggestions. I got enough for quite a few shows. So anyway, it's a cold day in the northern suburbs. It's about zero this morning. That's zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is very cold. But I've got a hot cup of coffee, and I'm inside a nice warm home. So now I'm ready to tell the story of three very unusual films. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. And then, outside United Artists' offices, from left to right, Mary poses with Douglas Fairbanks, Griffith, 
and Charlie Chaplin. Early work of scouts attracted many celebrities to the cause. Mary Pickford watches as husband Douglas Fairbanks goes few friendly rounds with scout making like the then popular Manasseh Muller. It's fast and too furious for Doug. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. was one of the most popular film stars of his day. He was an American actor, screenwriter, director, and producer who was best known for playing swashbuckling heroes in silent films such as The Thief of Baghdad, Robin Hood, and The Mark of Zorro. He made 50 films between 1915 and 1934, almost all being feature films. During that period in Hollywood, short films were still very popular, but Fairbanks was too big of a star to make anything but features. Yet, for some reason, between the years of 1916 and 1918, he did make a handful of short films. One was the bizarre 25-minute comedy silent film, The Mystery of the Leaping Fish. The Mystery of the Leaping Fish has Fairbanks starring as a Sherlock Holmes-type character named Coke Anyday. And if you're wondering if that name is a subtle drug reference, there is nothing subtle about it. Within the first couple of minutes, due to his boredom of not having a case to work on, similar to the way Sherlock Holmes was, he's shooting himself up with a syringe, something that he is constantly doing during the film. In fact, he wears a belt around his stomach which holds a series of syringes. Next to him is a large container which is clearly marked cocaine. Behind him is a clock, but instead of numbers, it has the word sleep on the bottom, eats on the left, dope on the top, and drinks on the right. He also has a stereotypical Asian servant who mixes up a strange concoction that he puts into a giant syringe and injects into Coke any day's mouth. Actually, let's go back to the beginning of the film. I left something out. At the start, Fairbanks begins playing himself, and he's reading the script to The Leaping Fish to someone, and he says, This story concerns the incident in the life of the world's greatest scientific detective, Coke Anyday. And then we cut to Coke Anyday's story. So, Anyday's sitting around his house, bored, his Asian servant walking around, when a man arrives at the door with a message. But before letting him into the house... Anyday looks at him through some sort of video surveillance equipment. Yeah, video surveillance in 1916. He gets the case involving a Chinese laundry called Sum Hop, whom are smuggling opium into this country by means of leaping fish. Now, the leaping fish are inflatable fish that people rent for 25 cents an hour to use while swimming in the ocean. The evil drug smugglers hide the drugs inside the inflatable fish. Along the way, we meet a young girl known as the Little Fish Blower, played by Betsy Love, who is being forced to marry a man of mystery. If she doesn't, as they say, the man of mystery will spill the beans, I guess, about the drug operation. I was never too clear on that. Anyway, the mystery man ends up kidnapping the young, beautiful girl. Now our hero, Coke Anyday, is put on a disguise of a coat, pants, and hat that all have a black and white checkerboard pattern to them, and he hops into a car that's also been painted with the same black and white checkerboard pattern. And he heads out to the ocean to investigate. Before he leaves, however, of course he does a face full of cocaine. During his investigation, he discovers opium, 
which he eats with his fingers as if he's eating peanut butter from a jar. And then for the rest of the film, he does this sort of jumpy dance thing every time he's on screen. There are so many crazy parts to this film, you really have to see it for yourself. I don't want to spoil it for you. But in the end, as you might imagine, any day saves the girl. So then we cut back to Fairbanks playing himself, and he's just finished telling this story to a scenario editor with the young Betsy Love sitting by his side. And the editor says, No, no, Douglas, you better give up scenario writing and stick to acting. So I've read that Todd Browning of Dracula and Freaks fame is said to have come up with the story, but I've also read that Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith also helped. Fairbanks hated this film and attempted to get it pulled from circulation, and it actually screwed him up in later years. When some of his early feature films were being re-edited into shorts, films that he had no rights to, he sued, claiming that these re-edits would hurt his career because he didn't make short films. But films like The Leaping Fish were offered up as evidence, and he lost the case. Now, it might seem odd that a film with so much drug use could have been made in the early days of Hollywood, but these were in the days when cocaine and heroin were still legal, and things like the Hayes Code, which dictated what films could and could not show, hadn't been enacted yet. And the fact that cocaine was in a high use in Hollywood at the time was something Fairbanks surely knew about. In fact, a couple of years earlier, Fairbanks' friend Charlie Chaplin made fun of drug use in his film Easy Street. The girl in the film, Betsy Love, would go on to have a fairly successful career, lasting all the way into the 1980s. Douglas Fairbanks, unfortunately, died tragically in 1939 of a heart attack, and he was only 56 years old. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain is a film completely outside the entire tradition of motion picture art. It is outside the tradition of modern theater. The Holy Mountain is a film outside the tradition of criticism and review. The next film was Alejandro Hadarowski's 1973 film, Holy Mountain. And I will have trouble pronouncing his name throughout the story. Now, before I began preparing for today's show, I had only seen bits and pieces of Holy Mountain. And finally, due to Brecky's recommendation, I watched the whole 115 minutes of Hadarowski's masterpiece. I'm not going to talk too much about the plot. The plot is crazy. It would take me too long. But for a quick overview, the plot is essentially about a man who looks a lot like Jesus Christ and who is listed as the thief in the credits who befriends a little person with no hands or feet after getting attacked with rocks by a lot of naked young boys while up on a cross. The two go to the city where he is used to create plastic Jesus statues. Eventually, he climbs up a tower and meets an alchemist and his naked, silent female assistant. After seeing the alchemist, who is played by Hadarowski himself, turn excrement into gold, he meets seven rich people who all claim to be from a different planet, and each one tells their story. After that, the ten people go on to, I guess, a spiritual journey to the holy mountain to find the secrets of immortality. 
and along the way there are many strange, violent, and often disturbing things that take place. Many of these very unpleasant to watch. Now, during my research, I found a lot of opinions about this film, and they are almost all black or white. Either people love The Holy Mountain, or they hate this film. For more opinions about this film, I would check out Psycon's movie podcast, Moving On, episode 42, where you'll hear a lot of opinions, mostly negative, about The Holy Mountain. I'll have links to it in today's show notes. But for me, I have to say, I enjoyed watching this film. But I have a thing for strange and unusual films, so whatever. I've heard Hadarowski say in this film, at least in part, it was an attack on religion. Not spirituality, because he considers himself very spiritual, but religion itself. I've also listened to many interviews with the man, and he is a very intelligent person, so... Anyway, I find the story of how this film came to be a bit more interesting than the film itself. Alejandro Yudorowski was born in Chile in 1929 and had a horrible childhood with many father issues. But by 1953, he was studying mime with Marcel Marceau in Paris. By the 1960s, he was in New Mexico where he became a disciple of Elo Takada, a Zen Buddhist monk. His first full-length film was called Fondo y Lis, and at the 1968 Acapulco Film Festival caused a full-scale riot and was later banned in Mexico. But our story really begins with his next film, the film that he became famous for, El Topo. El Topo is sort of a western with heavy doses of Christian symbolism and Eastern philosophy mixed in and ends up with the story of redemption and rebirth. It's very violent and disturbing. Now, a long, long time ago when I was still young, there was something in the United States called the Midnight Movie, and El Topo was the start of all that. Now, to understand the Midnight Movie, you must understand what life was like at the time. We had nothing like home video, no DVDs, VHS, Betamax, or streaming. Cable TV didn't exist yet, and we only had a handful of broadcast channels to choose from, and none of these were dedicated to showing movies. Most television channels might show a complete film once or twice a week, and those were the very commercial successful films, so the bottom line was, seeing a film like El Topo was impossible, unless maybe you lived in a big city like Chicago and New York that had art theaters. Now, there was a man named Ben Barinholz who saw a private screening of El Topo at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Even though he saw... People walking out of the theater during the film, he liked the film and began showing it in the theater that he owned called the Elgin at midnight every night. It was a huge success and eventually the idea of showing strange cult films at midnight began happening all over the country. It was at these midnight showings that such films as John Waters' Pink Flamingos, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, David Lynch's Eraserhead all became successful. Who knows if we would have heard of any of these directors if it wasn't for the midnight showings. Eventually, other filmmakers, such as Herschel Gordon Lewis and Andy Warhol, would find audiences through these midnight showings. Now, I came into the midnight thing after its heyday, and by the time I got a chance to start seeing these midnight films, they were showing a lot of concert films, like Led Zeppelin's Song Remains the Same and The Rolling Stones' Give Me Shelter. I do remember seeing Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein at one midnight showing. But by the early 1980s, home video had pretty much put an end to that era. 
Anyway, El Topo had a huge success at New York's Elgin Theater, and two people who really loved the film were John and Yoko Lennon. And they brought it to the attention of Alan Klein. Alan Klein had wormed his way into the Beatles when they were desperate for help in the late 1960s after their manager, Brian Epstein, had died. Paul McCartney wasn't a fan of Klein, and this caused more friction within the band, which added to the eventual breakup. Anyway, Klein decided to become the distributor for El Topo, and when Hederowski was ready to make another film, Klein gave him the money to do so. Hederowski was thrilled that he had a million dollars to make any film that he wanted, and since Hederowski believed that film should be art, he didn't care about mainstream success or money. So he went on to make The Holy Mountain. Now his relationship with Alan Klein was short-lived. By the mid-70s, it seemed that adult films were about to become mainstream. Films like Behind the Green Door, Deep Throat, and Debbie Does Dallas were being shown at mainstream theaters, and Klein was eager to jump on the bandwagon. He wanted Hodorowski to make the Story of O as his next project, and he promised his investors that it would be made. Hadarowski, who says that he recently discovered feminism, refused to make the film and left the U.S. to escape his directorial duties. This began a series of legal actions by Klein that kept El Topo and the Holy Mountain out of circulation for almost 30 years. What Hadarowski really wanted to do next was make Frank Herbert's novel Dune into a film. Klein knew that this was an unrealistic project, but Hodorowsky still spent the next three years working on this project before giving up. The story of Hodorowsky and Dune is a fascinating one, and there's a great documentary film on the subject called Hodorowsky's Dune. Besides the handful of films that Alejandro Hodorowsky has made, he is also a theater director, screenwriter, playwriter, actor, author, poet, producer, composer, musician, comic book writer, and spiritual guru. His body of work is truly amazing. He's written hundreds of books. His work has been called everything from genius to adolescent self-indulgent crap. Many assume that Hadarowski must have been high on LSD or something when he made the film The Holy Mountain, but I don't know about that. I do know he claims to be an atheist mystic who does not drink or smoke and does not eat red meat or poultry because he does not like corpses. Hedorowski is 87 years old and is still going strong today. American General Pictures imprisons you in a bloody web of terror. Spider Baby has the seductive innocence of Lolita and the savage hunger of a black widow. Spider Baby will give you nightmares forever. No man that loves her lives to love another. Her sweet kisses engulf you in a bloody web of horror. Spider Baby will thrill you, then kill you. Starring Spider Baby and Lon Chaney. And the last film I want to talk about today is Spider Baby, or The Maddest Story Ever Told. This 1967 black-and-white horror comedy was the directing debut of Jack Hill. Hill would later go on to direct such classics as Switchblade Sisters, The Swinging Cheerleaders, Foxy Brown, Coffee, The Big Bird Cage, and The Big Dollhouse. 
Jack is known for his low-budget exploitation flicks, but Spider-Baby has the look and feel of an old-fashioned horror movie. Unlike other horror comedies, Spider-Baby is generally creepy. The film stars Lon Chaney Jr., who plays Bruno, the chauffeur and caretaker of three orphaned siblings, Virginia, Elizabeth, and Ralph Mary, who suffer from something called the Mary Syndrome. The Mary Syndrome is an ailment that begins at a young age and causes the brain to slowly decay, and also brings on, I guess, violent tendencies. This is the unfortunate result of inbreeding. Virginia, played by Jill Banner, is the youngest of the Mary children and has a fascination with spiders, and she's also good with a knife. Elizabeth, or Liz for short, is played by Beverly Washburn and is the middle child that tries to watch over her younger sister. Both girls are very childlike as well as being flirtatious and violent. The great Sig Hag in one of his earliest roles is the oldest child named Ralph, and Ralph has regressed so far that he cannot even talk anymore as he has the mentality of perhaps a three-year-old. And listen, you haven't lived till you've seen Sig Hag in an undersized Lloyd Falteroy outfit. Oh, did I mention that these three kids are also cannibals? The four of them live in this large, creepy, dark house, the perfect setting for murder, chaos, and insanity. There's also three others that live in the house, Aunt Claire, Aunt Martha, and Uncle Ned. But they've regressed so far that they're kept hidden in the basement. Oh, one more thing before the young Virginia goes to bed at night, she kisses the skeleton of her dead father. One day, two distant relatives arrive who claims that the mansion they live in was is rightfully theirs. They bring with them their sleazy lawyer and his secretary, and the whole group has to spend a night in the house, and then the fun begins. And spoilers, not everyone will make it out alive. This was at the end of Lon Chaney Jr.'s career. Chaney had been a heavy smoker and drinker his whole life and it had really taken a toll on him. But it is said that he attempted to stay sober for this production. For much of the shoot, especially those in the old house, temperatures reached triple digits. And because of the heat and his alcohol withdrawal, he began sweating so much they would have to constantly stop to dry him off. One more thing I really love about this film is that Cheney actually sings the opening credit song. Sit round the fire with this cup of brew, a fiend and a werewolf on each side of you. This cannibal orgy is strange to behold, and the maddest story ever told. This was Jack Hill's first real directing credit. He had previously worked with Roger Corman, directing about 20 minutes of the 1960 film Wasp Woman, and helped Francis Ford Coppola with his Dementia 13. Now, the history of this film, after it was made, is uh, an interesting one. Soon after the film was completed, the company that financed the film, due to the Los Angeles housing bubble bursting, went into bankruptcy, so the film was never released. It would stay unseen for almost five years. It did have a small release in 1968, but it went almost unnoticed. Years later, in the early days of home video, Jack Hill found out that there were bootleg versions of this film on VHS. 
After receiving a copy, he was horrified to find out just how bad the quality was. It was so dark and washed out, it was hard to even see the actors' faces. He said his heart sank and he was sickened. He was determined to do something about this. Now, in the early days of home video, there was a problem with many films that were made before. You see, no one ever thought about home video, so when films, especially independent films, went to home video, lawsuits began over who actually held the home video rights. So when Jack Hill went to the lab that had the negative, they refused to let him touch it, fearing that they might get involved in some sort of lawsuit. He contacted the original distributor and through them found out the name of the production company. Then he called back the lab and asked who were on the list of people who had access to the film. Then he found out that as long as the production company received a proper purchase order through a fax, a person could come in and make a quality transfer of the negative. So Jack, now knowing the names of the people and the companies, created a fake purchase order on his home computer and faxed it to the lab. And because of that, was allowed to come in and make a quality transfer right off the negative. He said he paid them as quick as he could and got out of there because he knew what was going to happen, and, and eventually it did. The lab figured out what he had done, and as he said, they went ballistic, but it didn't matter. He had a beautiful copy of his film. Eventually, a fellow named Johnny Legend got a hold of Jack, and the two put together a home video release of the film. I had only seen this film on public domain sites like archive.org, and they were always horrible copies. So when a director's cut DVD release came out in 2007, I jumped on it. Along with a wonderful version of this film, there was also a making of documentary with interviews of the most of the surviving members, including Jack Hill, Quint Redeker, Beverly Washburn, Sid Haig, and others. There was also a short bit which Jack returns to the home where they made the film. It's odd because in the film, the Mary house seems to be located in an isolated location, but in reality, it was very close to the city of Los Angeles, and they had to shoot it at the right angles to keep Los Angeles from being seen. Jack Hill is still alive, and he says that he is amazed how people tell him how much they love Spider Baby. He also goes on to say that, at the time he was making these low-budget films, he was jealous of his friends who went on to make big-budget art films, but... Many of those films have been forgotten, but his films seem to live on. Bug right in my spiderweb. Virginia, are you crazy? You're bad. Bad. You are not supposed to play spider anymore. He's just a big kid. Yes, it's like you say, sir. We're not very formal here at Mary House. And the big black spider goes round and round. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. Wow, it's been so long since I've done a Coffee with Jeff episode. I must have been overly excited and I let the show run way too long so I don't have a lot of time to do my usual ending spiel. Just wanted to say that if you go over to the PsyCon website and check out the show notes for this episode, you will find links to all three of the movies I talked about today. Now, I want to stress that these links were active at the time I recorded this, but some of those things change for various reasons. Before I go, I just wanted to say thanks to Brecky for keeping me on for at least another year, and I apologize about my Geek Days error this week. 
<laughs> Very bad. Um, to everybody else, I usually thank. Thank you so much. Thanks for everybody for listening, for reposting, and all that usual stuff. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting, thrilling, stupendous episode. I'm sure it'll be great. I don't know what it is yet. Again, thanks for all the movie suggestions and episode story idea suggestions. I appreciate it so much, and please keep them coming. I'll be back in two weeks. Take care. So long. Goodbye. See ya. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Thank you.